Hello and welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvey. I'm joined today by Samo Burya, our uh, friend. So welcome back, Samo, uh, to the Palladium Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, so Samo um, is is today an international adventurer. He's coming back from Gobekli Tepe with a new article, a new essay for us on on ancient civilization, on the politics of archaeology, and and a bunch of new insights from that. So this is really exciting. This is something I know Samo you've been thinking about for a long time. It's exciting to sort of finally see these these things come together and be put together into a big thesis. And I think we should basically go through the article in terms of its arguments and lay that out and explore maybe in more detail a bunch of those major points that, that you bring up in the article. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, a good place to start is the Gobekli Tepe site itself. It's located in the you know dry hills of southeastern Turkey, not too far from the Syrian border, uh, at the edge of what people sometimes describe as the fertile crescent, right, where, you know, agriculture supposedly originates and where we have evidence of the first ancient cities, such as Eridu uh, in southern Iraq. Now, this site is interesting, and it has been causing a stir for many years, uh, because since its discovery in 1994, it provided the first example of, you know, megalithic construction, like, you know, these, these megaliths are these basically big rocks, like properly carved into T-shaped pillars. These are uh, standing pillars arranged in a circle, uh, you know, weighing from 10 to 20 tons. Uh, they're walls built. Uh, they're engravings on the pillars, uh, things such as lions and foxes and peacocks and uh, vultures and so on. There's also some depiction of humans, though the humans are depicted headless, which is in itself interesting and maybe something we can touch on later in, uh, later in the show. The site is dated to 11,500 years old. Some, some propose even 12,000 years old. Either one of these numbers is vitally important because it breaks the previous paradigm we had, right? The previous paradigm is sort of, you know, in the aftermath of the Ice Age, because of changing climate conditions, you know, Homo sapiens settles down in somewhere in the area of the Fertile Crescent, this sort of region stretching from modern-day Iraq, Syria, Israel, but also, say, the hills of, uh, of Anatolia. Uh, sometimes people also count Egypt as part of this region for, for archaeological purposes. People develop agriculture. Soon after that, they settle down, and then they start, you know, engaging in large-scale construction. You know, very notable here is that the Sumerian cities I mentioned earlier, Eridu, Ur, and so on, these cities are closer in time to us than they are to the Gobekli Tepe site, right? So this complex, which, you know, is routinely referred to as a temple, even though I would argue it's not completely sure uh, that it's a temple. You know, if we say something in antiquity had ritual significance, all we're saying is that, you know, religion and ritual is a part of everyday life. I wonder how many modern finds we could describe as of ritual significance. So that's why I'm hesitant to just call it a temple. I'll try to refer it as a site, as a complex, as a building. And, you know, there's um, a very interesting story of the discovery, which we can get into a little bit later. But for now, the key thing that matters is that this breaks our previous, uh, previous view. One of two things must be true. Uh, either agriculture 
was not a prerequisite for the construction of these truly massive buildings, these you know stone constructions. And in fact, we've been building them for who knows how long. You know, if it's twelve thousand years ago and agriculture isn't needed, heck, why not fifteen thousand years ago? Why not twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred? On the other end, it's well, if we do need agriculture to feed, to feed laborers, uh, and this is a significant undertaking, the estimates archaeologists have proposed is that it would require about five hundred workers. Uh, to bring these stones from a nearby quarry. Uh, they also found a quarry where they believe the uh, these stones were quarried. That suggests to me we just haven't found the oldest evidence of agriculture. But again, if we start pushing agriculture back, and note there is some evidence of much earlier agriculture, uh, such as Israeli archaeologists have found near the Sea of Galilee. The site is over 20,000 years old, and the, you know, they found evidence of what is described as proto-agriculture uh, because there's evidence that, you know, seeds were planted, they were collected, uh, they were even ground and possibly, you know, used for uh, simple things like, like making bread, etc. Uh, I honestly think that if this was a 10,000-year-old find, people wouldn't hesitate to call it agriculture. But because it's, you know, 20,000 years old, you kind of have to call it proto-agriculture or whatever. I feel these paradigm shifts, they come slowly, one step at a time. Still, you know, while interesting, it doesn't prove that agriculture is what's used, you know, many, many thousands of miles away near the Gobekli Tepe site itself. So I'd like to dig in a little bit more into this kind of current paradigm and, and this evidence that's at least challenging it around the edges. So let, let's get the, the timeline my understanding is around 14,000 years ago, there was some kind of um, heating event, relatively rapid heating event uh, coming out of the Ice Age, but that was very temporary. And then we dove back into the Ice Age for another uh, few thousand years. It wasn't until sort of 12 to 11,000 years ago that we we sort of definitively came out of the Ice Age. And, and then, so I think with Gobekli Tepe, I've heard numbers as old as 14,000 years and I'd be, and, and, and but you mentioned 11,000 years. So I'd be curious, um, just reiteration on, on that date. What is the date range that we're talking about with Gobekli Tepe? Is it during the Younger Dryas? Is it before the Younger Dryas or is it after the Younger Dryas? The Younger Dryas being that that secondary kind of cold snap event 13 to, to 12 to 11,000 years ago. Uh, this is 12,000 years ago, 12,000 to 11,500 before present. Yeah. So, so we're talking about something that, that is right around that time of, of, of glaciation, not definitively before the end of glaciation, but right around that time. Exactly. Exactly. And, and then, and, and 20,000 years ago, which you were talking about with that, that, uh, you know, proto agricultural or agricultural site, that's, that's definitively in the last glacial maximum. That's, that's, that's very much in the ice age. Yes. Yes. It's, uh, it's the Ohalo site. Yeah, so so that that's really interesting. So it, basically, I think the current paradigm, especially with kind of available archaeological evidence, has been that you know civilization began on the order of ten thousand years ago, slowly ramped up. We got started getting the first cities, you know, six eight thousand years ago, which is of course just when we find them. And agriculture is sort of supposed to have uh, been developed alongside of that, and and things have sort of 
progressed in a relatively smooth, like a cyclic collapse, but relatively smooth growth underlying all of that to the present of, of, you know, kind of industrial civilization before that Iron Age civilization, Bronze Age civilization, Neolithic kind of uh, empires, et cetera, et cetera, just this kind of smooth progression. And and so what you're saying is that Gobekli Tepe, I mean, obviously it challenges the, the usual timeline at least by many thousands of years, but but you're also saying it might actually blow open the paradigm so that we we may just not know how old civilization is, how old agriculture is. Yes. And the important consequence of us not knowing how old agriculture is or how old civilization is, or at least monumental construction, which you know usually we associate with some level of civilization, um, this immediately means we have to entertain different hypotheses of where exactly to dig. It's very easy right now to basically try to, you know, very easy. It is not difficult to argue that you want to study the origin of agriculture by digging somewhere near the Fertile Crescent. However, if we push these timelines back, if they might be 20,000, 30, 40,000 years ago, well, perhaps we should be digging in North Africa, or perhaps we should be digging in the deserts of Saudi Arabia, areas that were once, um, you know, moist, that were green with vegetation, but that dried up uh, later in history. And of course, in addition, since we're talking about the end of an ice age, right? We're talking, in fact, about a rise in sea levels. Most most of the Mediterranean coast was significantly uh, lower than today. Uh, most of what today we also think of as the Persian Gulf was uh, above above the waterline, not below the waterline. And underwater archaeology is one of these interesting areas that's barely gotten started. In the 1970s and 80s, it was still innovative that divers would explore the very much known and well-established city of Alexandria, right? Currently, there's still underway, you know, these attempts to make the world's first underwater museum to explore these Hellenistic era ruins. Uh, but, you know, honestly, if those same exact ruins were found in a less well-documented location or were not in the, you know, the Greco-Roman style, I wonder, uh, I wonder whether we would actually go to the trouble of exploring them. There's some interesting finds, you know, off the coast of Sri Lanka, which are sometimes claimed to be cities or sometimes claimed to be natural formations. And really, there's nothing implausible about it. The the sea there is at some places only 10 meters deep, 5 meters deep. It's a really, really shallow area. Sri Lanka used to be, you know, continuous with the Indian mainland during the last ice age. So one thing that's that's worth considering here is just like if you imagine what are the most advantageous sites for civilization or for a city or something. Well, you know, if you if you look at the most powerful cities today, it's it's very obvious. It's it's in river valleys and it's on coastlines where you can have, where you can build a port and or do fishing or whatever. There's there's always these these kind of these areas that tend to be very rich from a civilization perspective of, uh, and and build powerful cities. So we can imagine probably that as soon as people were building cities, they were probably um, many of the most important cities would have been again on coastlines and on rivers, especially sort of lower river delta areas. And and the result of that, especially with the sea level rise, is that those cities are going to have been lost underwater, and and in the river deltas or in the river valleys and deltas, you have the problem of sedimentation. 
as well. You know, rivers change course, they move around, they, add, they, they pile up the, the sedimentation over the course of thousands of years. We're talking about very significant deposition. And, and so not only might some of these cities be underwater, they might be buried under tens of meters of sediment. So, so that's, that's something that comes to mind for me. Like looking, like I, I, I tried to a while ago, look at what would be the coastlines in the Persian Gulf a long time ago, basically before the sea level rise. And, and one thing that's interesting is you actually have these two competing processes. One is the water is rising. The other is actually the land is rising because of sedimentation. In fact, today we have more land in modern day southern Iraq and Kuwait than existed during the Sumerian period. So, you know, a very long time ago, the Persian Gulf is basically not there. It's above the waterline. Then there is, you know, a rise in sea levels. And in fact, then slowly ever since, basically the Tigris and Euphrates River deposit sediment, building out more and more land. So if you look at a a, cla- a map of classical Sumerian civilization, they'll usually mark the area that used to just be sea. And we know it's been, it was sea partially because we just have accounts of cities that we found that are described as being on the, on the coast of the sea, which are now, you know, significantly inland. And also this, uh, you know, land being deposited by the rivers in a way, uh, this eventually caused those cities to be replaced by other merchant cities, outcompeted by other merchant cities. So this change in geography has also, you know, strong political and economic consequences. So this basically gets us through this this concept of kind of the the Gobekli Tepe site challenging our paradigm on what actually happened in the history of civilization. But I, I want to talk also about, and, and you touch on this a little bit in the article, why does the history of civilization matter? Like what what does it mean for us and for our future if civilization is much older or is as young as we think it is? What's what's the big significance of this stuff? Why does it matter at all? Why can't we just kind of proceed with some myths about the deep past and and kind of continue about our way? What is it? What's the big implication? Well, there's several ways to talk about it, but I think possibly a very good way to think about it is to ask yourself, you know, do we live in a Steven Pinker universe uh, or do we live in a Robert E. Howard universe? Robert E. Howard being the author of Conan the Barbarian in the Steven Pinker universe. Agriculture is discovered, you know, economic growth happens, there are more and more people, you know, the people adopt coinage laws, you know, very quickly, they're doing astronomy, you know, maybe there's some bumps along the way, such as, you know, the bubonic plague, or, you know, Mongol horsemen or whatever. But essentially, civilization is like a well wound machine, right? It just goes in one direction, and this direction just improves things, you know, with some setbacks. Uh, The Robert E. Howard universe is you know, you're walking about a world and you have these, you know, fantastic advanced artifacts buried in the ground. You plunder a tomb and the tomb isn't just valuable because it has gold, but because, you know, you find a, an, a steel sword in it, a steel sword that your people have no idea how to make. You know, you have some cities around. These cities are dominated by strange snake cults. Uh, some of the cities are sustaining themselves. Some of them are collapsing. And, you know, history just kind of goes around along like this for thousands of years, millennia after millennia, societies rising, societies falling, societies developing some amount of metallurgy, losing some amount of metallurgy, cities being settled, cities being abandoned. And the Robert E. Howard universe might seem, 
you know, very fantastical. In fact, it's a fictional setting, allegedly, compared to someone who's thinking in the Steven Pinker world. But even if, you know, even in the Steven Pinker world, we see all of these sort of anomalies that suggest it's just not so. Uh, you probably are familiar with recent research in the Yucatan Peninsula, where scientists flew with low-flying planes and drones and basically did a LIDAR sweep of the jungle. LIDAR, to simplify, being just laser radar. It has the interesting feature that as you bounce these laser beams, some of them make it through the canopy. Therefore, you can map uh, basically the surface terrain absent vegetation, right? You can reconstruct it and just, you know, virtually strip away the vegetation. And what did they find? They found that we radically underestimated how urbanized uh, and how large Mayan civilization was, something by a factor, uh, like a factor of eight or 10, so an order of magnitude. Uh, then there's the notable discovery of interesting finds from the Amazon jungle and other things. So if we look at the new world, it's not controversial at all that there are, you know, things like the Mississippi mound builders or whatever, who were wiped out by the arrival of old world disease and so on. What is interesting and controversial then is to consider that, you know, maybe maybe the Columbian exchange wasn't so unique. Maybe civilizations were being wiped out all the time in the old world as well through similar types of disasters. And in fact, we can again lean on consensus history to look at something like the Bronze Age collapse. The Bronze Age collapse reads exactly like something out of, you know, the Kona and the Barbarian universe, where a collapse in trade networks leads to a shortage of tin, leads to an absence of bronze, right? And bronze, of course, being absolutely vital as a military technology uh, from, you know, basically in this Eastern Mediterranean area from the Peloponnesian in modern-day Greece, through Anatolia, through Syria, Palestine and Israel, or at least what we call Palestine and Israel today, uh, you know, all the cities have this like charred layer of destruction, right? And it's unclear whether it's civil war or foreign invaders or whatever. The important thing is that through a period of 50 years, right, at around 1000 BC, uh, civilization takes a massive step backward, so far back that there are many regions where uh, pottery is no longer found, right? And pottery is like so ubiquitous that at least in this stage of, of history, the people assume that if we don't find pottery, that means people are no longer living there. I wouldn't, I'm not sure I would go quite as far, but there was a massive, massive depopulation there. So we have the example of this really big collapse of new world civilizations. And note the Mayan civilization predates European contact. So that collapse is actually its own data point, independent from things like, you know, the Amazonian, uh, the Amazonian settlements or the Mississippi Mound Builders, right? Those were societies that collapsed after, you know, uh, contact was established in the Caribbean. And then we also have the Bronze Age collapse. And now we have this site, this Gobekli Tepe site that no one was expecting. You know, this is not the first time we've had to radically revise and lengthen human history the Sumerian and Hittite civilizations were unknown and new discoveries of 19th century archaeology. The Hittites were only you know, mentioned in a few biblical references and assumed to be mythical, and the Sumerians weren't even mentioned in any biblical source. They were a genuinely new and surprising discovery that people found when they started translating Babylonian tablets and realized that, wait, 
Some of these are from a as of yet unknown language. And then for decades, debates rage, right? With some uh, Assyriologist proposing funny explanations like, oh, you know, this is actually a made up language used by the Babylonians themselves for a special purpose, right? <laughs> but let's let's talk a little bit more about the political import. I still wanted to sketch out, okay, so this is a really different history. Uh, what does it imply? Well, I think it implies some really different things about our society as a whole and about what humans are. It means, in fact, you know, they're probably isn't an inevitable destiny of progress. Rather, there are particular societies that build up their social technologies and material technologies, and then at some point, they usually fail, often due to internal crises of various kinds. It makes human history much more precarious. I'm not going to say necessarily you know, arbitrary, but definitely much more precarious. It also suggests that a much older human history means that if we want to believe that there's something special about our more advanced technological civilization, whatever it was, it didn't happen 8,000 years ago. Because, you know, maybe there were, you know, cities at about uh, the Sumerian level of development 20 or 30,000 years ago. The point of departure has to be far more recent. Or possibly there is no point of departure. And despite our very advanced technology, we are as vulnerable as humans have ever been to societal decay and yes, collapse. Just, just to flesh out that, that kind of modified paradigm, you, you mentioned, you know, it might be that that progress isn't inevitable or, or that, you know, we could actually collapse back into the dust. Maybe there were civilizations that, that got a lot further than we think, uh, a lot older than we think. One thing, you know, just looking back on and at least the known history, it looks like we definitely have these cycles of collapse, right? You know, you have the Bronze Age collapse, you have, and then you have the rise of Greece, and then you have, you know, Hellenism, or, or sorry, the, the Hellenistic era, Alexander's era, that that almost comes after, you know, a collapse of, of mainline Greece, to some extent, it's sort of this, but, and then you have, of course, you have the Alexandrian era, then that kind of decays, the Romans take over the Roman Empire, obviously, much more definitive collapse there. Though uh, there's there's constantly though through all of this there seems to be these threads of continuity as well and the continuity seems to carry major innovations where you have actual major technological um, or or there's there's a few sticky innovations it's it's not that everything is kept everything is not kept most of things are lost uh, over and over but we also see some of these things seeming to be sticky. Some of the philosophical currents that that started in Greece seem to be sticky through, uh, you know, the Roman world, the Islamic world, uh, etc. And and then of course through through the Renaissance into the modern world, that, that there seems to have been some sticky cultural production there. And then likewise, you know, any genetic legacy of of these civilizational cycles. Sometimes things like iron metallurgy, like there's just enough built up there that that for whatever reason it hasn't been lost or maybe it's it's basic enough that it's hard to harder to lose but it makes it, it sort of really raises the bar of what's possible and I, I imagine there may be things that, that were developed previously whether those be social technologies or material technologies like maybe the concept of law for example uh, as we understand it you know you have these ancient codes of law you know Hammurabi's code 
it, you, there may have been a civilization that was the first to develop that and they they achieved incredible wealth and power on that basis and you know then they collapsed and but the thing that stuck around with them was some things they had learned about law and then the next civilizations were building on that foundation so I, this is this is something that i see and now obviously this is just kind of a vague paradigm this isn't some definitive kind of empirical fact but in that world that that's not quite pinker world right it's it's like still most of civilizations being lost occasionally but you also have this seeming ratchet uh, a relative ratchet of of forms developing that stick around and it's the same thing kind of biologically with the history of life you occasionally get these mass extinctions where almost everything gets wiped out and often you have these smaller extinctions where a lot of stuff gets wiped out whole species go extinct etc but through all of that, you also get this accumulation, this underlying accumulation of forms. And, and so I'd love to hear you kind of engage with that. I, I guess the question here, you know, given that human civilization didn't exist at some point in the past and now it exists at this level, there, there must be some kind of uh, accumulative process going on there. And, and the question, I guess, is just to sort of what fraction is accumulated versus what fraction is lost uh, in these civilizational cycles. And so, uh, I, yeah, I'd love to hear you engage with with that kind of idea. Just like how much are we talking about in terms of what's lost versus what's what's able to be preserved? Well, I think that, you know, the question of preservation is always a question of is there a successful, you know, is there a successful transmission from one society to the next, right? Is there it's not so much, you know, we shouldn't imagine these things locked up in a museum. In fact, one of the funny finds that I've run across in my research is, you know, there's a, there's a Neo-Babylonian museum that was discovered by archaeologists where artifacts from Sumeria were brought, they were labeled, and, uh, you know, then the museum became the exhibit of, of today. So, you know, there's, a, it's, there's something really funny about that. I, I wonder what, how the archaeologists who were digging this up felt. They were like, is there even a point in putting this in the museum or should we just, you know, bury it <laughs> up before we're just the latest layer, the latest sediment layer? <laughs> um, and and the, 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 the nature of preservation is kind of one of adoption. So I, my view would be that it's possible for civilizations to learn and adopt social technologies, material technologies, information from other civilizations. But this is far from certain. I would even challenge uh, our normal historical view of what is successfully transmitted and what is lost. Uh, you know, when it comes to ancient Greek authors, I think something like 94% of Greek authors, we only know by name. We We don't have any sort of access to their works. All we have is a cryptic reference to their work or maybe a short snippet. And this doesn't even count the Greek authors we never read or never heard. So yes, some Greek philosophy persists. Uh, some of it was adopted by Islamic and Roman and, and Western civilization eventually, but we don't know what was lost. We might be working on the equivalent of a bad blog post for all we know. You know, Plato the blogger, right? It, it's not too far stylistically, and I enjoy, I enjoy Plato partially for that reason. The, the capriciousness of it versus some sort of deeper drive of it, that, that to me I think is philosophically very important because if we only have this capricious preservation, then 
really we could be completely ignorant of many many things in the past and you know i will say that say uh, artifacts such as the lycurgus cup which is a late roman artifact from the 4th century it's a it's a dichroma cup meaning that depending on you know which which side you shine the light on it's either going to be uh, green or red that's an example of an artifact we just didn't believe that the romans knew how to build until we we found one of them right until uh, it showed up and of all things it showed up from private collectors uh, so it wasn't it wasn't even dug up from an archaeological site because it was such a valuable thing you know it was, sort of was passed around passed passed as a as a trinket as something of interest something of a treasure uh, and the second aspect is also you know there are things like the antikythera mechanism which is not from the late Roman era, but is rather from the Hellenistic era, sort of second century BC, uh, which seems to be like a fairly advanced compute, computational device, a device that had it been stored, you know, on land, eventually would have been just melted down for the bronze. Well, since it was on a ship that sunk, uh, modern divers found it in the 1970s. And, you know, people weren't even quite sure what it was until... Uh, they x-rayed it, right? Because obviously corrosion had ate through a lot of the material on the surface. And then with the x-rays of it, we were able to reconstruct the machine. So that that brings up a really interesting fact about archaeology and the history of civilization, which is that as civilizations decline, they often don't take too many pains to preserve the previous uh, legacy of achievement. You know, for example, melting down all the machinery to make weapons. Or I think another example of this is just the kind of more political thing of, of erasing the achievements of the past because, you you know, you've decided that they're, that they're against your ideology, against the gods, some kind of uh, idolatry or some kind of uh, uncomfortable legacy. And so you get these, these sort of two, two major processes, right? It's just the salvage process and the political ideological erasure process that actually might be responsible for just destroying an enormous amount of what otherwise might have been preserved civilizations over the long haul and and so you know it's not like you could have some desert site where there's some you know a highly advanced metallic civilization sitting around uh that isn't buried and and have that actually be preserved over thousands of years because someone's going to either destroy it or or salvage it and so that that's kind of like this this limiting factor on what we can possibly know about the past and what we can infer from a lack of artifacts because people will seek out and reuse or destroy artifacts often another conceptually important aspect of this is that whenever we are reading about the history of technology we have to realize that past finds are the floor not the ceiling of past achievement so it's quite possible that, say, archaeologists digging for artifacts from the middle of the 20th century would find cars, maybe some sunken battleships, maybe some tanks, and they would never stumble upon a jet engine. It would be incorrect for them to be confident that we did not have jet aircraft, right? It would be an incorrect conclusion. Yet, if you know people were casually aware of the history, uh, they might you know assume that a sentence like, the earliest evidence we have of jet uh, of jet propulsion 
uh, goes to the early 21st century in China, you know, people might very easily have the mistaken impression and a popular belief that that actually means that, oh, we know for sure jet aircrafts were invented in 2021 in China, right? Because that's when the oldest building is from. And that's why I say Gobekli Tepe, you know, think about it. What are the odds we really did find the very first megalithic construction site? Minuscule, minuscule. It's a joke, right? And notably, this site itself was destroyed. Right. There is evidence that it was intentionally backfilled several centuries later after it was abandoned. Why? Well, you know, ancient ruins are, are damn grotesque and possibly scary. Iconoclasticism, as you point out, has always been a big part of human history. One recent example of this might be the destruction of the Afghan Buddhas in the early 2000s, something that was much reported on in Western sources. Uh, you know, where the Taliban concluded that they were somewhat idolatrous. Though, you know, to to say something interesting on the other end of it, uh, they did note that UNESCO people kept coming around and offering money and basically offering money for setting up something of a tourist site. Uh, so I actually wonder whether, you know, UNESCO maybe doesn't bear some responsibility because they were seen as a foreign influence. Yet they sort of kept trying to, you know, be active in that area. And that kind of provoked this political decision as well in its own way. Trying to preserve something or claim it can be resented by the locals because it could be seen as domination or imposition on them. And honestly, you know, sometimes it really is, right? You know, uh, sometimes an empire, when it conquers an area, decides, you know what, you're not, you're not good enough to preserve your heritage. We're going to preserve it for you. That's definitely the attitude of uh, British Egyptology in Egypt, say, around the 1900s. Part of the, part of the mandate to, to administer the area is the preservation of antiquities, right? Today, we forget this, this sort of moment in evolution of uh, justification for empire, but it was, it was an argument used. Yeah, so this brings us to the politics of archaeology, which is sort of this big topic that's looming over all of this, is just why do things get dug up? When do they get dug up? What are the political circumstances that need to be in place for us to even discover this stuff? You know, even if it's lying around there for a long time, you know, it's been made through all the filters of intentional destruction, intentional salvaging, somehow being preserved, maybe underground for a long time. And, it, and it's there, but but actually going and discovering it and not just discovering it, but it making it instead of going into a private collection or going into some looter's sack, it, get, it gets into a museum the that there's a whole bunch of political requirements political prerequisites for that to happen right there has to be a friendly local government relative stability there where archaeologists are able to work there has to be you know a concrete empire that's able to uh, administer that whole process and and make sure that things are getting dug up in sort of an orderly and and uh, documented fashion rather than you know ending up in someone's private collection for the next 300 years or, or destroyed or whatever. So, so can you tell us a little bit about the, the political aspect of, of archaeology? And, and I think this comes into why Turkey, why you went to Turkey. Right. The two big factors obviously are that, you know, governments control territory. So no matter who you are or where you are, you need a government's permission to dig, right, to dig in a particular area. And secondly is also 
the case that governments are the source of the vast majority of archaeological funding. You know, the occasional philanthropist or adventurer, independently wealthy adventurer, not, notwithstanding. This means you have two big selection effects working here. Part of the issue also is that sometimes the past becomes dangerous, right? The past can become controversial. So the interesting example here might be the Terracotta Army. The Terracotta Army is, you know, the sort of hundreds of warriors, uh, life-sized uh, terracotta statues that were buried with China's first emperor, right? It's one of the well-known symbols of modern China. It's an internationally uh, renowned find. It's a matter of pride. Yet, when it was first discovered, it was discovered in 1974 by Zhao Kangmin. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. He'd been a He'd been subject to a Maoist self-criticism session because he was a suspicious person, quote-unquote, involved with old things just a few years before. So his first impulse upon you know, hearing of the site from local peasants and starting to dig it up was, we have to keep this quiet. You know, uh, The Maoist mobs are going to come in and they're going to smash the statues because they're evidence of an oppressive feudal past. And honestly, had this been found just a few years earlier, he wouldn't be wrong. The interesting part of this story is that it actually took a, uh, you know, a journalist coming from a state-affiliated news agency asking him the question, this is such a huge discovery, why aren't you reporting it, uh, to kind of give him courage. Well, not just courage, uh, the, the journalist from the state-affiliated news agency uh, didn't really give him a choice. He was going to write about it either way. But the interesting thing about that question is he, he of course, perfectly understood. He perfectly understood why Zhao w wouldn't want to talk about it. And he needed to communicate to him that, look, it's now okay. Ancient statues are now a political, you know, asset. They're no longer a political liability. Therefore, you know, you're not adding to your spotty record as someone interested in old things through their discovery. Because, you know, when you directly reference the possibility of political repression for a find, this can be dangerous in itself because it's admitting the existence of political repression and censorship in the first place. Uh, a pointed question is sometimes a better way to communicate these types of truths uh, in a way that doesn't result in self-incrimination. So we have the Terracotta Army. It was politically fortunate for China in the 1970s that was opening itself up to the world and wanted to prove that, you know, uh, Western historians had underestimated Chinese civilization, that Chinese civilization was as old as Egyptian civilization, as glorious as Roman civilization. And uh, this find proved itself a good fit. Other examples that are worth considering here are the politics of finds in modern day Egypt. If you go to Egypt today and you look at the Egyptian currency, you're going to find a political compromise physically manifest. Every bill of the Egyptian pound on the one side features ancient Egyptian architecture, you know, signs in English, Central Bank of Egypt, one pound. On the other side of the bill is Arabic writing and usually uh, a mosque or some other Islamic shrine, building, and so on. So why is one side of every single bill pharaonic and the other side is Islamic? 
The answer is Egypt's national identity is a compromise between two positions. One of them is, you know, the truly ancient past is idolatrous. And the other one being, you know, this truly unique Egyptian history is what sets us apart from the other Arabs. So if you are an Egyptian nationalist, you might be inclined to identify strongly with this ancient past. If, on the other hand, you are an Islamist, you might basically view this as all glorified idolatry supported by foreign, you know, by foreign money, maintaining sometimes corrupt governments. And in fact, it is economically important, by the way. Uh, tourism, you know, in 2010, about 12% of Egypt's workforce uh, was, you know, employed in some way or another in the tourism industry. Yeah, it's funny, like the the concept of Egyptian nationalism, because, you know, obviously these things are so old and there's been so many cycles of, of population replacement and rise and fall of kingdoms and empires uh, since since all these things were constructed that basically the, you know, the modern Arabic Islamic civilization that now occupies the site it basically has nothing to do with with those things, but somehow it still manages to boost national pride. I think you get similar things with um, many other civilizations where they try to uh, emphasize this continuity with with some sort of absurdly ancient past that that they actually don't have anything to do with. Yes, stolen stolen valor is in a way typical of all human civilizations, right? We do have Egyptian obelisks uh, standing in you know London, Paris, Rome, and Istanbul. You know, I'm I'm quite sure the Egyptians didn't put them there. And it's an interesting question what exactly people are saying when they, you know, go to a distant land and they bring that obelisk in. I think they're actually claiming to be the heir of that society, of that civilization. And, you know, maybe there's a broad human way in which we are all heirs to everything. But that also, in a way, is, I think, implicitly kind of like a really bold statement. Like when I was talking earlier about UNESCO, one way to view UNESCO is that UNESCO is basically obelisk hunting. It goes around the world. It tells you, you can't touch this site. This is the common heritage of all mankind. And you're like, what are you talking about? That's my field, right? There's, there's a small element of that. There's a small element of that. But still for, for Egypt, you know, if you're constructing this identity, you know, in the case of Egypt, there actually is a really deep ancient history to explore. But there are some other countries where uh, arguably the history is much sketchier. Here, I'm in particular thinking of Nicolo Kosciuszko's Romania. So this is the Romania of the 1980s. There was a trend called protochronism. It means first in time. In that time period, it was, you know, regime-supported uh, historiography attributed the Dacians, mind you, not the Romanians, the Dacians as the inventors of basically everything from writing to monumental construction to currency. And that actually you see Rome was a Dacian colony rather than the Latin speaking, you know, Romanians being the descendants of Roman colonists. So actually it, it went the other way around. This tendency is very obvious also with other Balkan nationalities. Say, you know, when you read discourses about the Bosnian pyramid or any sort of historiography of the Croatians or any sort of question as to, you know, when exactly did the Slavs settle modern-day northern Macedonia, et cetera, et cetera. 20,000 BC, obviously. <laughs> I mean, yeah, after, after the, you know, Fino-Korean hyperwar. Um, yes. But the, the basic trend is nationalists tend to view 
You know, our people, we have always lived here, and temporarily we have forgotten who we are, but secretly we invented everything in the world. And this is kind of in common with nationalist currents in China, in Kosciuszko's Romania, in Egypt, and in modern Turkey. Just because this is, you know, a biased motivation, this is still a motivation that can result in funding of real digs and the recognition and promotion of real finds. In a way, it's not iconoclastic. It sometimes fakes history, right? Produces, uh, you know, counterfeit history, misinformation with regard to history. But it's unlikely to destroy things that are found. Now, even there, there's, of course, some complexity. I couldn't help but be provocative with some of my Turkish friends, and I asked them, you know, is one of the reasons Erdogan is so eager to promote the Gobekli Tepe site because the Gobekli Tepe site isn't Greek? It's kind of funny, right? Why would Turkish national identity find it much easier to digest the Gobekli Tepe site than a Greek site, right? Because you have wonderful things like the ruins at Ephesus, or even, you know, Istanbul itself still has remnants of old Constantinople, such as the uh, Hagia Sophia, once a church, then a mosque, then a museum, and for the last few years, once more, uh, a mosque. The reason is any Greek find is already owned by Greek nationalists, right? Greek nationalists to this day, of course, propose revisionist maps where they obviously should have Western Anatolia, they want to retake Constantinople, and so on. So a Turkish nationalist, you know, they would have a difficult time arguing this doesn't add to the glory of Greek civilization unless they came up with a story by which modern Greeks are actually not Greeks and ancient Greeks actually spoke Turkish. Now, maybe I shouldn't give them any ideas. I'm sure there's <laughs> at least one book proving this, definitively proving right. this. But yeah, so this, this find in southeastern Turkey, you know, we know nothing about this people. So this can become a national symbol then. That allows it to become a national symbol. It's kind of like modern-day Mexico and uh, Aztec and, and Mayan ruins. To be fair, there's a tiny number of Mayan speakers still around in uh, the jungles of the Yucatan, but civilization-wise, there's just no continuity there. Yet, it can become a national symbol. Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.